This is an ABC podcast. Rwanda 1994, and the voices you can hear are taken from broadcasts on RTLM, a radio station with a large nationwide audience at the time. RTLM had been set up the previous year, and it existed openly as a platform for ethno-supremacist ideology propounded by Hutu extremists. On April 7, 1994, after the assassination of the Rwandan president, RTLM began calling openly for Hutu citizens to rise up and exterminate their Tutsi neighbours. The words they used to describe the Tutsis, words that had been routinely used in radio broadcasts during the months prior, were snakes, vermin and cockroaches. 14 weeks later, 800,000 people would be dead, including around 70% of the Tutsi population. This week, we're looking at one of the processes by which people can be led to participate in atrocities and mass murder, the process of dehumanisation. I'm David Rutledge. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone. My guest this week has a close personal understanding of dehumanisation and how it can work. His name is David Livingston Smith. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of New England in Maine and the author of a new book titled On Inhumanity, Dehumanization and How to Resist It. I grew up in the Deep South in the 1950s and 60s. I'm I'm not a youngster. And that was the Jim Crow era in the Deep South. My town was segregated. Black people lived in dire poverty, and racism was the order of the day. And I don't mean something that we infer by subtle uh, cues. I mean overt and explicit racism. I mean that boys that I went to high school with would boast of hunting black kids with their air rifles on weekends for fun. My father came from an old Southern family. Uh, although he was born in Brazil, missionary parents. My mother's parents were uh, refugees, Jewish refugees from Eastern Europe. And they had stories to tell. I grew up in sort of an extended family situation with my grandparents, my maternal grandparents. Uh, They told stories about pogroms and persecution. And one which I mentioned in the book, my grandmother used to tell me the story of her mother, who was Romanian, being pushed into the gutter by a Gentile soldier saying, get off the pavement, Jew. And in the family story, she looks at him straight in the eyes and says, you will die before the sun sets, you know, putting a curse on him. (laughs) And of course, in the fable, he died before the sun set. I'm sure that did not happen in reality, but it's the sort of story that makes people feel good. Yeah. So it was, it was those sorts of influences and others from my early life, my efforts to make sense of the world I was in, which my grandmother helped me with because she was an amazing, self-educated woman. She had to leave school at the age of 14 to work in a sweatshop, but she she was self-educated and she had an encyclopedic knowledge 
of genocide, of the of the extermination of indigenous Americans, of the persecution and oppression of African Americans. And she taught me all of those things, which was great because the world would have been unintelligible, I think, the world I was in without that sort of instruction. And now here you are writing a book on dehumanization. And it's interesting that this book should appear now. And in some ways, dehumanization is as old as humanity itself. But then it's also very timely right at this moment. Would you agree? Oh, I certainly do agree. I mean, for a couple of reasons. One is that people, white people, are becoming much more aware of racial oppression and racialized violence than they were before. And dehumanization often plays a role in that. Another reason is the strange uh, surge in totalitarian uh, governments that we find all over the world. It's very, very unsettling. And of course, with these totalitarian, or I should say authoritarian, they're not yet totalitarian, uh, in, in authoritarian politics, dehumanization is a very, very common, very prevalent uh, propagandistic trope. And there's the larger picture. We are facing some unique challenges, chief of which is catastrophic climate change. And with catastrophic climate change, we will see refugee problems like the world has never seen. And the collapse of infrastructures and the shortage of resources and all of that really, in my view, is a perfect storm for some of the most toxic, the most violent, the most dangerous forms of dehumanization. And we need to be prepared for that. And what about in in the United States specifically? Because in these sorts of conversations where we talk about dehumanization in recent history, we think of places like Nazi Germany, of course, Rwanda in 1994, maybe the, the, the Balkan Wars during the 1990s. But what about the USA right now with the, the, the racial and political tensions that we're seeing? I mean, how much of a stretch is it to include America in a conversation where we're also talking about Rwanda and Nazi Germany? And, you know, a lot of people would say, come on, you're, you're being overly dramatic. No, no, it's not a stretch at all. So if we look at American history, the United States, like almost all nations, was born in violence and sustained in oppression the genocide of Native Americans who were dehumanized, and of course the oppression and dehumanization of African Americans. And that is particularly, we find this particularly after the Civil War and the failure of Reconstruction. You know, black people were ostensibly freed. In fact, they became re-enslaved through other means. But if you look at the way Black people, particularly black males, were described in that era. And I'm speaking about the late 19th century, really well into the 20th century. And, and it persists now in a somewhat different form. Uh, what you find is they're referred to as beasts, as fiends, as demons, as predatory apes. Uh, 
I mean, really, this is the root of the idea of the super predator, which took off in the 1990s and, you know, had the support of the then, then First Lady Hillary Clinton. So this is an entrenched ideology that seethes the way just below the surface. Political events in recent years have given people permission to be more explicit than they have been for a while about these dehumanizing beliefs and dehumanizing sentiments. But they didn't come out of thin air. One of the problems with ideologies that involve the dehumanization of some marginalized group is they're incredibly robust. They can persist in a latent form for years and years, even centuries, only to become reawakened when the, let's say, the social and political ecology permits that to happen. So I don't think this is a stretch at all to talk about the United States in the same breath as Nazi Germany and Rwanda. In fact, after all, the Nazis emulated the United States when they created their race laws in, in the 1930s. Nor is it a stretch to leave Australia out of the picture. Talk more about that. Well, I'm by no means a, an expert, but of course, your nation was born in violence, born in genocide and, and extermination. And we know from records early on that the killing of Aboriginal Australians was sometimes described rather jocularly as hunting expeditions. And of course, now there is racist and dehumanizing sentiment around, uh, primarily around refugees, primarily around non-white refugees. But of course, you and your listeners would be much more familiar with the details of this than, than I am. Well, let's talk at this point about what dehumanization is exactly, because you state quite clearly at the beginning of the book that to dehumanize another person is to conceive of them as a subhuman creature. Now, does that mean that the concept is always that of being other than human, or, or can it also be a concept of suboptimal humanity, if you like, where, where there's a sort of a sliding scale at work. You can dehumanize people to greater or lesser degrees. How do you conceive of it? What I mean by dehumanization is conceiving of others as subhuman creatures, as less than human creatures. So that's pretty categorical, but it is related to, let's call it pre-dehumanization. Dehumanization is almost always preceded by racialization. A group of people is conceived of as belonging to a separate race. And when that happens, I, let me be explicit about it, a separate and inferior race. So that would be racism, just, you know, straight out racism. Racism, as I see it, and I distinguish it from dehumanization, is the belief that there are races, first of all, and that members of the races that aren't us are inferior human beings. They are human beings, but they are inferior human beings. They have less intrinsic value. You know, to use the, the idiom which is so common now, 
their lives don't matter as much. Dehumanization just pushes that a little bit further. These others are not inferior human beings. They are extruded from the category of the human altogether. And that, that categorical leap makes a difference to liberating acts of violence against the dehumanized population. And I guess it's important to remember that from the perspective of the dehumanizer, the dehumanized person is not just other than human, but a sort of a a non-human, inhuman form, which really taps into a very primal sort of anxiety, doesn't it? Yes, that's very, very important. Dehumanization has the function of disinhibiting violence. It disables inhibitions that we have against doing serious harm to other human beings. Now, why should such a process be needed? Well, it's needed because of a fact about the species Homo sapiens. We are hypersocial animals. Now, any social animal has to have inhibitions against doing severe violence to fellow community members. Because, of course, I mean, it's sort of obvious, isn't it, that you can't maintain a social existence if you're ripping each other's throats out. So those inhibitions have to be there. In most social animals, it's confined to the local breeding group. But for us, it extends beyond the the immediate community. The fact is that when we encounter other human beings, we are exquisitely sensitive first to their humanness, their, their basic sameness to us. The sight of the human face kind of turns that on. And that response, that seeing human in another, inhibits violence. It's not a moral thing. It's an automatic, unconscious, modular response. But, you know, we are pretty clever animals, and we recognize that, gee, you know, sometimes it can be really practical to do terrible things to others, to steal their resources, to exterminate them, to create Lebensraum for ourselves, to enslave them. And over time, we develop methods of disabling our inhibitions, to methods that allow us both to disinhibit aggression and to rev it up. And humanization is one of those methods. It's not the only one, but it's, it's one of them. So when others want us to do terrible things to others, people in positions of authority, people who are supposed to know, they tell us that these others might look human. They might be human on the outside, but really take it from me. They're not human. But there is a problem. There's a fly in the ointment here, which, as I said a little while ago, we can't help seeing human when we look at others. It's just part of our evolved nature. So when we take on these views, that representation of the other as a subhuman animal, say a rat, coexists side by side with our representation, our mental representation of them as a human being. So when the Nazis thought of Jews as rats, they didn't think of them as little four-legged rodents scurrying around. They thought of them as rat people. 
Now think of that, rat people. I mean, that would be a good title for a horror film, you know, The Rat People. And that's not accidental because when you create impossible beings like this, all human and all subhuman, when you get people into this incoherent state of mind, they start thinking of the other as a monster, as an uncanny, highly disturbing entity. And this makes the dehumanizing process even more dangerous and more toxic because then then this brings in notions of evil. This brings in ideas that these others deserve, right? There's moral desert involved. They deserve to be harmed or killed. On RN, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week is David Livingston-Smith. We're talking about dehumanisation. It's a turn of mind that I think most of us feel is in some sense unnatural. To dehumanise the human is an unnatural move. And yet you quote the American biologist E.O. Wilson at the front of your book who, who wrote that humanity is a magnificent but fragile achievement. And elsewhere in the book you, you write yourself that the category of the human is a social construction, nothing natural about it. What exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, again, that's, that's very important. It's something which is widely misunderstood. Philosophers don't talk about the category of the human very much. They're big on the category of the person, but they don't talk about the idea of the human. And generally speaking, they seem to think the idea of the human is unproblematic. So if you ask someone, and this would be most philosophers, uh, as well as most others, well, what is a human? They'll respond, well, it's a member of our species, Homo sapiens. Science has shown that that's what a human is. But in fact, that's wrong scientifically. Human is not a biological taxonomic category. It's a folk category. It's like weed. You know, when I say there are weeds in my yard, what unites all those plants that I call weeds is nothing biological whatsoever. It's their relationship to a certain social practice, which is cultivation. Right? So a weed is just a plant that is growing in the wrong place. So the way the concept human works, it generally works as what we philosophers like to call an indexical term. Those are terms that have meaning entirely in virtue of the context in which they're used. So if I say I'm here, the word here names, well, my office here in New Hampshire in the United States. But if you say, I'm here, here names where you are sitting, the other side of the world. Well, human is like that, I believe. Human means my kind. Now, it's a little bit more complicated and a little bit deeper than that. But it's a socially constructed category. Those who are not human are not my kind. They're categorically distinct from me. Isn't there a 
potential problem there, though, in that establishing humanity as a, a socially constructed concept, that when we talk about human rights as being intrinsic or essential to every person, if we're sort of pushing back against that essentialist thinking and saying that the whole notion of, of a human being itself is a social construction, doesn't that then pull the rug out from under the concept of human rights and make it easier, if you like, to dehumanise? No, I don't think so. I, I just think we need to treat the concept of human rights a little differently. So it simply involves moving away from the idea that there is some fact about every member of our species that makes it the case that they have certain rights. And we don't need it. All that we need to do is have an ethical commitment to the idea that everyone in this world, every member of our species, and maybe members of other species, are my kind. I include them in the category of my kind. We also see that people who commit horrific acts of dehumanization are often dehumanized themselves, right? turned into to monsters in the public imagination. And th this is something that we seem to need to do. I, I remember some years back when the, the German film Downfall was released. It, it featured a portrayal of Hitler that was very psychologically nuanced. It even had elements of pathos. And mm. a lot of people were really offended by the notion that this was humanizing Hitler. And, you know, there's, there's something morally outrageous about humanizing the monster and engaging our sympathies on his or her behalf. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's awful. Uh, you know, it's a way of creating distance. So when we dehumanize those of whom we disapprove, whether they've committed atrocities or simply we disapprove of them as white people disapproved of black men, say in, in 1920 in the United States, we're placing them at a distance. We're placing them that, you know, it has nothing to do with us. But I think it's very, very important to understand, first of all, that monsters do not exist. Monsters are fictions of the imagination. Hitler wasn't a monster. Stalin wasn't a monster. They were people who did terrible things. So that's the first point. It's just misleading. But second, and I think this is actually actively dangerous, it places them at a distance from ourselves. It's as if to say they are a different kind of entity than I am, than we are. And that accounts for their behavior because I, we, could never do something like this. But I think what we really need to do is, at least to some degree, look at ourselves reflected in that mirror. Because if we're going to protect ourselves from dehumanizing others, but we're going to protect ourselves by being the playthings of propagandists who, who want us to do awful things to others, then we have to recognize our vulnerability to dehumanizing attitudes. Right? We have to recognize that we are, at least in principle, capable of either performing or at least going along with awful, awful, awful things. And treating these, you know, dramatic cases as monsters goes right contrary to the attitude I think we need to have. Remember, dehumanization doesn't come from the inside. 
People get us to dehumanize others. They exploit a vulnerability, a psychological vulnerability, or actually exploit several psychological vulnerabilities. Those psychological vulnerabilities get exploited by people who want to get us to do awful things to others. We're manipulated, we're revved up, and so on. But this is a social technology. It's not like we're hanging around and suddenly we get this idea we're going to think of the others that live next door as less than human. So with that in mind, we have to keep track of ourselves, right? We have to understand what it is about us that makes us vulnerable to dehumanizing propaganda so we can be vigilant. We can keep an eye on ourselves. And by us, do you mean you and me and and the people listening to this program? Because I I would imagine that a lot of the audience here would be thinking, well, yes, dehumanization is terrible, but I would never do it. Yeah, right. But I would like to see any of these people transplanted into Germany, say, in 1935, growing up in that environment. Yeah, I mean, talk is really cheap. But when you are actually confronted with the forces, or Australia in 1789, say, you know, when you're in there, when you're in the mix, it's very self-flattering to think that you would not do those things. Well, why did so many other people do them? Were they all monsters? No, they're ordinary folks. So this is all about self-acceptance and self-knowledge. But the other side is political and social. You know, it's the politicians, it's the religious leaders, it's the talk show hosts, the exception being you, of course. Of course. That, that, that drive dehumanization. You know, they propagandize us, they scare us, they use techniques of propaganda to, to manipulate our vulnerabilities. And we need to understand those techniques that people use and take political action to constrain them. Well, I'd like to end by returning to the beginning of your book, which um, you include a nice joke about a a village idiot engaged in a fruitless task, and you hint at a certain identification on your own part with that idiot. Tell us the joke, and if you feel the joke may be on you. Yeah, okay. Well, it is sort of on me. Um, So this is my favourite Jewish joke, and it's about Saul, who... You know, lives in a little shtetl, a, a, a Jewish settlement in in Russia, and he's unemployable. He's the village idiot. You know, he can't hold down any job. But you know, in this village, that it's important that everyone has a place. So the rabbi creates a job for him. He is to sit at the outskirts of the village, stare intently into the distance, waiting for the Messiah. So. That's what he does. Every day he he schleps out with his chair, sits there and gazes into the distance waiting for the Messiah to arrive. One day a stranger comes up the road, sees him sitting there and says, what are you doing? And Saul says, it's my job. I'm waiting for the Messiah. The pay's bad, the hours are long, but it's steady work. (laughs) Right? So I think I'm not interested in playing philosophical mind games. The reason is I, that I write is I think that there are really urgent problems. And to put it really crudely, I want to change the world. 
in my naive quest to change the world, I'm like Saul waiting for the Messiah. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's it, I, I can't be optimistic about the project, but the point is to keep pushing on, to be hopeful, perhaps, rather than optimistic. David Livingston-Smith, Professor of Philosophy at the University of New England in Maine and the author of On Inhumanity, Dehumanization and How to Resist It. Publication details on the website. That's The Philosopher's Zone and you can find us via the RN website or the ABC Listen app. And I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for your company. See you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.